nutrition, when done right, can create more health than all the pills and procedures combined. Nutrition is not taught in medical schools. Of the 130 medical specialties that we now have, not one is called nutrition. When we think about medical treatment, we think about doctors and hospitals, medical devices and drugs, but rarely about nutrition and lifestyle. The major burden of disease in our society is due to lifestyle-related disorders. And what we do in the medical domain is treat those lifestyle disorders by drugs. But lifestyle disorders cannot be treated by drugs alone. Welcome to Aletta Talks, research podcast of the Aletta Jakob School of Public Health. My name is Leonie van Ristok. Today, we are exploring the neglected knowledge of nutrition and lifestyle in medical care. With me in the studio is Gerja Navis, internist nephrologist at the University Medical Center in Groningen. If you do not combine the pharmacological treatment with lifestyle measures, the drugs simply don't work. They simply don't work. So we close our eyes to that in the medical domain. And we stimulated to do that by the pharmaceutical industry because they want to sell the drugs as a simple solution. The impact of the way we live and eat on our health is still very much neglected in medical treatment, even when treating diseases that are known to be caused by food and lifestyle. How come that despite all the knowledge that we have on the relationship between lifestyle and chronic diseases, this still hasn't changed? One of the reasons that lifestyle is neglected in our medical professional life is that we do not know how to deal with it. So it makes us uncomfortable. When we prescribe drugs, that's what we have been trained to do. And we are the only ones who are allowed to prescribe them. So that's our professional identity, more or less. But when it comes to lifestyle, it's much more fuzzy. And everyone has an opinion. So doctors are trained to treat conditions with pills. And Gaia Navis is a doctor too. What made the difference for her? I was trained as an internist nephrologist, and a nephrologist uh, treats kidney patients. And when you're healthy, your kidneys dispose of a lot of waste products from the body, also waste from food and protein turnover. But when you have severe kidney disease, your kidneys do not do that anymore. So that's one of the reasons that our patients have to stick to very severe diets. A very severe diet. So that's what got me interested in food and diet. And it occurred to me, after many years in medical practice, that we could learn a lot from those patients, how they deal with those uh, lifestyle restrictions in their life. So over the last five to ten years, I have been able to devote uh, my time entirely to food and health and lifestyle in uh, much broader populations. And it turns out that many of the assumptions that we have on a healthy lifestyle are at least very shaky. How common is this approach in medical treatment and research to take the perspective and experience from your patients and learn from that? That's a perspective that's not often taken. That we can learn from how vulnerable people deal with big issues. We are used to thinking that we as professionals or as governments or as institutions know what should be done. I had a Zon and Wave project 10, 15 years ago, a long time ago, and then I discovered how much the quality of the project was determined by the input of the patients. So that was really an eye-opener to me. If you want to do anything with lifestyle, 
who have to do this by co-creation, which means that patients have to be a full partner in the project. It has been proven that for lifestyle interventions to be successful, patients have to take part in the process. Now, what is it that we can learn from these patients? What I saw in patients is that people can change their lifestyle. And what I also saw is that you do not need a university training to change your lifestyle. And one of the things that we learned, very practical, was simply give people feedback on what they achieve in their lifestyle programs. It, actually, it's a much more important message than you think at first glance, because there's a big therapeutic nihilism on changing lifestyle. When I come to an audience with, I don't want to insult anyone, with, but with psychologists, it all starts with uh, that it's very difficult and you, that you need motivational counseling and that it's, it's so difficult to change your lifestyle. But if you approach it this way, well, you discourage people from the start. Uh, that's also what I got back from my patients. Stop motivating me because I am motivated. That's why I'm here. Help me to realize this. How can this be done practically? So this means implementing it uh, comes down to health literacy, food literacy, how to do it. I think it's important to realize that most people can do much more than you think. Once you help them to do it, and that's something different from the common perspective of the self-redsame burger. The self-redsame burger, translated the self-reliant citizen, is a politically driven concept that basically states that people can take care of themselves and therefore the government doesn't have to intervene. But there's a difference between respecting people's autonomy and leaving them to their fate when they're in need of help. How do you help people shape their own lives? How do you help people to take the driver's seat? Well, not every patient can take the driver's seat, of course. But the first thing you have to learn as a professional is to realize that if you are in the driver's seat, the patient will never take the driver's seat. You have to limit yourself in your good intentions, in your good intentions to take over. So basically, you have to be there for your patients and support them in the way they need it to do the things they have to do themselves to get better. Just very short, you said there's a, a huge amount of therapeutic nihilism. Could you explain what you mean with that? Yeah. Therapeutic nihilism is when professionals think this patient will never make it. This patient is not motivated, is too stupid, is not willing, etc., etc. Every healthcare professional starts with an idealistic view. You want to improve people's lives. That's why you work in healthcare. And then you get a lot of frustration because you cannot help everybody and you cannot help them as good as you want. Healthcare professionals get frustrated and discouraged when patients don't get better and blame them for their failing therapies. How does this affect patients and treatments? There's an element to therapeutic nihilism that's very uh, deleterious. And it's actually is that you blame the patient. Too stupid, too unmotivated, etc., etc. Beware of blaming the victim. This is your own frustration about being ineffective in changing her lifestyle. Do not blame the victim. Because this phenomenon, when you're full of good intentions, you do not see that you blame the victim. Because 
you have your professional qualifications or your knowledge is okay. You have all your good intentions. So how can you be wrong? But blaming the victim is a dangerous psychological mechanism. Well, that comes from the powerless of, powerlessness of the professional. But you should recognize it in yourself because it stops you from thinking. It stops you from thinking that you might be wrong. You simply might be wrong. You might be doing the wrong things. When treatment is failing, it's easy to blame the patient, while the problem might actually start with prejudice and wrong assessments. Our first impression is the strongest. And when we see a very fat person, this impression sticks. And there may be a lot of prejudice attached to this first impression. Namely, that this is a person with a problem, that this is a person who is unmotivated, who has no self-control, who eats too much, whom we have to convince, and who can probably not be convinced because they're not motivated. But if you overlook, for instance, that an obese patient is at the same time malnourished, you give the wrong advice. Because if you're malnourished, this exercise program will never work because you're tired all the day. So... Blaming the victim, thinking that it's the patient or the citizen who has the problem and that you know it all and that you just have to reach them and just have to convince them, that's a terrible pitfall. That's a terrible, terrible pitfall. While stigma and prejudice are already harmful enough on their own, patients get the wrong treatment on top of it. What can professionals do to break this vicious circle? As professionals, you should make a full assessment. You should realize who's in front of you. You should ask them who they are, what they want in life, how they think about uh, changing lifestyle, what they think are feasible options. And it's your responsibility to make this full assessment. What I said, when we started checking whether there was malnutrition underneath in the obese patients, those second-line diabetes patients, who everyone considers therapy-resistant against lifestyle interventions, One in three was undernourished. They were over 100 kilograms and had a BMI over 30. One in three was malnourished. You wouldn't believe it. I wouldn't believe it. The WHO has long recognized what they call the double burden of malnutrition. Concomitant, overweight and underweight. And common belief is that overweight and underweight and malnutrition are opposites. They can be opposites when it's just a matter of quantity. But much more generally, they're the two sides of the same coin, which is poverty and which is too much food that's energy dense and nutrient poor. So the double burden of malnutrition is a disorder of poverty. Food that is high in calories and low in nutrients is usually also cheap and fast and easy to prepare. Research shows that the poorer the neighborhood, the higher the amount of fast food offerings, which makes it even harder for people with a lower income to make healthy food choices. Poverty is a burden to society, not only to the individuals, but also to society. So the combat of poverty and social injustice actually is the basis for public health, even in the Netherlands. While you might not need university training to change your lifestyle, The health gap is still growing, which means that the lower your education and income, the more you have to fight for your health. 
Lifestyle programs are usually designed by people who don't need them themselves, and most of the people who do need them come from a different world than policymakers and doctors. It's easier to counsel someone who's much more like you. So here the social distance between professionals and the patients become an issue. Blaming the victim is easier when the patient in front of you is poor, has a low education, is unable to express him or herself properly in the Dutch language, etc., etc. I think as professionals we could do more justice to those who need it. And actually, one of the things that struck me in the hospital is that when we discuss with the physiotherapist and the dietitian this issue of undernutrition and the way it interferes with training and rehab, we all know it. But it's not embedded in practice. Prejudice and wrong assessments, social distance and stigma can lead to wrong conclusions and therefore wrong treatment. So, apart from better assessments, what can professionals do to really help their patients? If you have a very motivated and driven professional who believes in you, that's the strongest behavioral intervention you can get. The real answer is, if you as a professional don't believe in the power of your patient, they can never do it. And even if you don't speak out on this, people sense that. People sense that. People sense whether a professional is motivated to help them to change their lives. Now, we talked a lot about this issue on a more individual level, about professionals and the way they see and treat patients. But the way medical training and research is formed is also a matter of policy. What is going wrong on that front? If you see policy papers with the question, how can we reach them and how can we convince them? That's the policy version of the professional prejudice, I think. We cannot reach them. Okay, if you cannot reach people, apparently you do not know them. So how do you know what's good for them? Still, a lot of money goes to prevention projects that have these two issues. How can we reach them and how can we convince them in their priorities? It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So the prevention world is partly lagging very much behind what we can know from the current state of affairs. So that's too bad. So I, I understand it's a complex issue and maybe it's a too simple question, but what do you think is like the biggest problem in this whole question? So the, let's say the fact that business profits are so prominently driving policy is one of the big issues underneath problems of obesity, public health. The legal system should value these health issues against the business issues. There are a lot of things that the government could do. I told you about my encounters with psychologists who tell me to nudge patients towards a good direction. And nudging is also something that's very common in public health. We think we have to nudge people. But they are nudged all the time. They are nudged all the time by the big commercial parties and the business models lying underneath. And those business models are terribly powerful. They are terribly, terribly powerful. So while we, in designing programs, are 
thinking about how difficult it is for people to change their lives and whether it's ethically allowed to nudge them. People are really under a tsunami of nudging that drives them into spending their money on things that are not good for them. And in our system, this is all allowed because business interests prevail. This should really be changed. So policy is biased by prejudice and neglected knowledge. And profit weighs stronger than health interests, even though it is well known that healthy populations are better for the economy in the long run. So what should be done? What should be done is, first of all, restrictions on these aggressive nudging from commercial parties. But it can take a long time before we have realized that what we should do is make people aware that they're being manipulated and make them being aware that they can close their minds to this nonsense. Make them aware that it's just about their money. And what's even more important is not only their money, it's about their lives. We have to empower people to make their own choices, to make their own choices and to be aware about this overwhelming nudging. Well, the word nudging is... Uh, actually too kind to all this commercial violence. That's actually an interesting question, I think. Is it actually possible to make your own choices? If you're nudged all the time and, let's say, victim to commercial violence, how possible is it to actually make a free choice? Yeah, that's <laughs> you need a philosopher to that. But let's say, as a doctor, I look at what I learned from my patients and I saw that there was a minority who was able to make the choices for a healthy living by themselves and to realize it. And again, those were not the people who had a lot of money, who had a higher education. Those were personalities, realizing I'm here and now, it's my own life, and what I can do, I can do. The government needs to act. But big changes usually go slow. And in the meantime, we can start by creating more awareness to the way we are being influenced. So we can start to make choices that benefit our health and our life, instead of filling the pockets of the food industry and pharmaceutical companies. This was Aleta Talks with Chaya Navis and the neglected knowledge of nutrition and medical treatments. If you liked this episode, please like and subscribe and listen to our other episodes. In our first episode with human rights lawyer Brichi Tubes, we talked more about freedom and the influences of our environment on the choices we make. Click on the pop-up link to listen to this episode directly. For now, I want to thank you so much for listening. Take care and talk soon.